Welcome to Jewish History with Rabbi David Katz, connecting the human side to Jewish history. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidavidkatz.com. We certainly have a full plate tonight, and so let's get right down to it. I'll pick up where I left off last week, and uh, it's hard, obviously, for us because we're Jewish. We're not Catholics to understand the way someone else thinks, but you have to do your best because the Jews lived under these um, regimes and the cultural context for you know thousands of years, literally. As we've seen, up to the 13th century, the, that's the 1200s, the Jewish culture and the Jews personally had enjoyed a surprising amount of tolerance uh, combined with condescension in Catholic Europe. Would you agree with that? Those of you who were here last week, many people I'm sure were surprised that the popes and the others would say that there's a special responsibility to preserve their physical security, they can't mess with their cemeteries, things like this. Now, they weren't nice to them, but on the other hand, for a Jew, at the end of the day, or for anyone else in the world, personal security is, is the bottom line. You know, either you have uh, you know, law and order and life and liberty, but you can't get attacked on the street or something like this, or as they say in the rabbinic literature, Ish Yisrael Chaim Blaot, that would you know, get torn to bits, uh, as we see in many countries around the world today. So this was the, the funny kind of a situation of the Jews in what they called Christendom, which are all the nations of uh, Catholic Europe. This reflected, as I tried to explain yesterday, I tried, the uh, conflicted attitude of Christendom towards the Jews. I repeat, they had a conflicted attitude. To Christians, the Jews, were a theological oxymoron. Uh, the people chosen by God, who had rejected God, but who had not exactly been rejected by God. And, you know, what do you do with them? Especially the Christian religion, which merges out of the Greek culture, likes things in nice squares. And what do you do with the thing that doesn't fit that nice square? We know what Christians are, we know what non-Christians are, we know what pagans are. What's the Jews? You see? You can't just exactly kill them. Jesus was Jewish. Paul and others say in the New Testament they're going to come around one day. They're God's beloved, but they're also hated. You know, how do you work that out? Now, we being Jewish, I say, I don't care, you work it out any way you want. But to them, it's not funny. Um, an essential element of this condescension was ignorance, as I tried to argue, of Jewish religious culture. Most significantly, the development of the Torah Shabbat into the Talmud, which after all, if you want to get down to it, it's a process that lasts a thousand years. Uh, if you want to, I mean, you know, so that's a slow, long business. That's like I would tell you today, tell me about the unfolding of democracy. Boy, you have to go back centuries and centuries, and, you know, in the Middle Ages and the Renaissance and the Age of Reason and the Enlightenment and this, and that, you know, it's a long business. So again, how did the Torah Shabbat Pet switch from this to that, to a bunch of books? That's a long process through a lot of history. So obviously, an essential element of the Christian Catholic condescension was the ignorance of the Jewish religious culture, as I said before, and they didn't know about the development of, of the Talmud and the emergence, certainly, of the Talmud as the supreme canonical text, uh, the, the supreme defining text of Judaism. I'll tell you a funny thing. It's not funny at all. One of the main reasons, one of the main reasons, not the only one, that we have such a huge gulf between different sets of Jews today. It's not good, but it is what it is. You said to Jews today is because, once again, 
one set of Jews is like totally into the Talmud and stuff, and the other's never even heard of the word. And if they did, it, you know, it, it just doesn't mean anything to them. And so that's Jew and Jew. Now imagine Jew and non-Jew. In the East, in the, not Western Europe, but in what you call Eastern Europe, the Middle East, um, the Christians seem to have been a little bit more aware of these developments. And so if you go back already to the 500s, that's a long time ago, um, it led to no good. Justinian was the famous Eastern Roman Emperor, the Byzantine Emperor. Uh, the lawyers know about Justinian's laws. Uh, he didn't like Jews at all. And he heard about the Mishnah, and he prohibited it. It's one of the more famous things where, I'll just read you very quickly from a piece of his laws, uh, because uh, the Justinian laws, like many Roman laws, like to micromanage. There are different traditions in history about how closely laws should run things. And uh, the Roman one is they should run a lot. And so he said, whenever there's a Hebrew congregation, those are, he's going to tell the Jews how they can daven. I, I, I assure you, I mean, this is really true. Whenever the Hebrew congregation, those who wish it may in their synagogues read the sacred books who are present in Greek or even Latin or any other tongue. So he knows about the Greek targums. And I've told you in other places, uh, long ago in his time, the Torah was read on Shabbos in Greek, not in Hebrew. By Sefer Torah is written in Greek. It's funny to us, but the Sefer Torahs were written in Greek. Those who use Greek, he says, shall use the text of the 70 interpreters, which is the most accurate translation. That's not what we hold, but that's what he as a Christian holds. Talk about the Septuagint. Right? The from thing is that there is, that's not a good one. We want art scroll. We don't want the other one. But that we may not be seen forbidding in other texts, we allow those to use that of Aquila. Aquila is equal to art scroll. So you, know, you can use that, though he was not of their people, and his translation differs not slightly from that of Septuagint, uh, but I'll allow him to do that. But the Mishnah, or as they call it, the second tradition of Deuterism, we prohibit entirely. So you already heard about a book called the Mishnah in his time. The Gemara wasn't quite out, but the Mishnah was, and uh, that they can't use. It's not part of the sacred books, nor is it handed down by divine inspiration through the prophets, but it's the handiwork of man, speaking only of earthly things and having nothing of the divine in it, etc., etc., which means I don't buy in this business that the Mishnah really contains the Torah Shalapah of ancient traditions going back way back. That's baloney. Uh, you can have the Old Testament. And you can have any translation you want. But I don't want to hear any of this other kind of stuff. Well, that's in the East. But uh, for Jews in the West, ignorance is bliss. Uh, there, the Catholic Church was developed differently. You understand what I'm saying? Eastern Europe was not Catholic, uh, as we understand it. Not Roman Catholic. Western Europe is. Central Europe is. And there, the Church went on in blissful ignorance about what the Jews are doing. They figured that they're just reading Old Testaments with commentaries. They never heard about the Talmud. On the other hand, the toleration was grounded in the Jews being inferior, make that clear. Most importantly, in the Jews acting inferior. And here is the big problem. In other words, in the Christian hierarchy, the Catholic hierarchy, the Jews are an accursed people. Their low position in life should reflect this accursedness and will hopefully help to guide them to see the error of their ways. And so the Christians easily can point out, see, you once had an Israel, you don't have anymore. You once had a base on Migdash, you don't have anymore. You once had this, that, and the other, a powerful, and now you're scattered all over the place. You know, they ask for it. Signed that you rejected God. Can't you read the tea leaves? What's wrong with you? Okay, I get that. But even more so, whenever you see Jews, they should be a downtrodden people. Um, really, what they had in mind is like the, sad, is like the Cowboys and Indians. The Indians should be in reservation. They should be an inferior uh, status and things like that. That's the one for the Jews. Problem is, the Jews did not feel inferior. 
<laughs> and worse, the Jews did not act inferior. See, this is the problem. Now, this was expressed in two problematic ways. First, at the end of the day, the Jews usually enjoyed a better lifestyle than most Christians. And they always employed the Christians, and that means the Jews the master. And notice, I don't care how poor the Jewish housewife was, and some were very poor, there were always people out there, peasants and other things, who were poorer. And so you all know, if you have parents and grandparents and great-grandparents and stuff like that back in Europe, I don't care where they were, there was always some non-Jewish help of one kind or another, even though your ancestors might not have been very wealthy. And uh, that's not right. Uh, the Jews should be the maids. <laughs> that would reflect the proper hierarchy. But it's not like that. Uh, the Jews in the Middle Ages strive for and often attain what we would call middle-class status. In a, in a land of peasants, a middle-class person is extremely wealthy. Would you agree with that statement? So that's a problem. Second of all, Jews have big mouths. They always do, and they still do. They vigorously, well, they vigorously proselytized, and they mocked Christianity's religious ideas and institutions. This notion that we have today, that we Jews are against con conversions, missionizing, and all the rest of it, is technically true, but historically not accurate, by which I mean that according to the Talmud and those kind of places, you're not supposed to go and solicit converts from others. In spite of that fact, people being people, Jews did. And the reason they did was, you try to argue religious with me, I'll argue back. Sometimes you might be smarter than me, sometimes I might be better than you. And let's face it, many Christians uh, say like this, these guys live better than we do. <laughs> if I marry this guy or something like that, it's a move up. <laughs> I, don't see, I don't see the downside to it. What, theology? Yeah, you can take that or leave it. But tachlis, you know, they're not living so bad. And it could be that a person might be persuaded by the arguments that the Old Testament makes more sense than the New Testament, and that sort of thing. There are a lot of arguments, if one wishes to go there, they could poke holes in in the Christian narrative. After all, as Ramban says later on in this famous debate that we'll talk about hopefully next week in 1263 in Barcelona in front of the king of Aragon, when he deals with Pablo Christiani, he says, you make fun of my religion? As a Christian, I wouldn't make fun of anybody's religion if you want to go there, because people who live in glass houses shouldn't throw stones. You think they're funny things you find in the Talmud? Okay, let's take a look at some of the stories in the New Testament, if that's where you want to go. I'm not starting this. But if you want to bring that up, there's what to talk about. And so, hmm, the Jew shouldn't talk like that. And he shouldn't, if he knows what's good for him. And he want to think, that, I, I understand. But we all know, it's what I always call, I've mentioned here in the past also, the phenomenon always drives me crazy. Who told this Jewish guy to call up the talk show? Right? We all know exactly what it is. And, and, and he or she is now the spokesman for the Yiddish guys. We all know. Well, you had this in the year 2012. You had this in the year 1012. And 1212. You see? It's a Jewish thing. And so they have big mouths. This was dumb, especially when they managed to snare a nobleman or a high churchman. Then it really called into local trouble, the local Jewish community. You understand? We have cases, a fair number of cases, not a super amount, but a fair number of cases of knights and um, uh, people who had been uh, high in the church hierarchy and others who converted Judaism, usually they would take the name Ovadia because by tradition, the prophet Ovadia was supposed to have been a convert from Edom to Judaism. There's such a, there's such a tradition in the Talmud. Uh, so there's the, the Re Roman knight 
who be uh, Ovadia became. I mean, can you imagine a guy who's fighting like a William the Conqueror type uh, with you know Ivanhoe and all that becomes a Jew? And this is very shocking to Christian sensibilities. And uh, if the Jews were smart, they would try to discourage this. But as they say before, I'm smart. That doesn't mean the person next to me is smart. This is a problem. Um, we have all kind of very interesting cases, fascinating cases. I've mentioned them in the past. Uh, there's the famous story of Ravenu Tom and the Tosis that I mentioned last summer, and the lady where there was a Jewish girl and she was married, but obviously it was a situation where she was young, the husband was old, so she ran off with a boyfriend who was not Jewish, a Christian. Wait a minute. And uh, so he fell in love with her. He really fell in love with her because sometime later she came back to Judaism and he followed her back in Judaism and converted to Judaism. Right? Is that for a movie or what? And the question, and the, and Rabbeinu Tom even said that they can ma- get married, even though really you'd think not. It's a famous tosis. So, you know, this was part of life. Now, as long as there were um, weak or otherwise preoccupied popes, there were no major consequences because they had other things on their mind. Uh, the popes throughout the Middle Ages are trying to conduct uh, conquest campaigns to take over whole new areas of Europe and Christianize the barbarian population, or else they're engaged very heavily in battles with kings and princes and things like this. Remember Beckett and that sort of thing, right? You know, who gets to be in charge of appointing the bishops or getting the money and that sort of... As we saw last week, uh, the popes uh, had other things on their mind than the Jews, and therefore, since there was a tradition going back to the time of Gregory I, long, long ago, of what I read you last week and I put on the board, Sicu Judeus, thus to the Jews, which means don't harm them, they're inferior, but one day they'll see the light. Don't physically harm them. Protect their property, their synagogues even. They have the right to remember his language. They have the right to, to, to practice their ancestral customs, which means they can go to Shoal, they can keep Shabbos, their cemetery should not be desecrated, all that sort of thing. Uh, every pope renewed this, and they always got money for the Jews for doing it, of course, as did the cardinals and the archbishops and so forth. So no, everybody was on the pay, which is only smart. If you're Jewish and you live in a certain town, you're darn right that at Christmas and Easter and other times of the year, you're going to give the guy a gift. That's what it is. If you think it's an ancient thing, I heard not long ago, uh, I forget it, or maybe I saw it, a speech that was given maybe here or somewhere else by one of the Bondies that Rabbi Breuer was uh, escaped on, on uh, Kristallnacht or something like that when the show was burning because the German policeman said, I'll let you out because you always give me a, a box of cigars before Christmas. You understand? So no, that's, that's the old way. Now, um, as long as there was, there was no formal campaign launched against the Jewish religion, which is the religion of the Old Testament in Christian terms, of course, was flawed and incomplete, but sacred and legitimate. Remember that. Uh, fortunately, uh, when the first guys in Christendom started to poke their nose into uh, Judaism, what it really is, they didn't get much traction one of the most famous people in the Middle Ages, not just to be famous to anybody here, is Peter of Cluny, the famous uh, monk who started cleaning act reforms. One of the, maybe the number one monk, really, of the Middle Ages, uh, the abbot of Cluny, uh, Peter the Venerable, and a uh, very, very famous person in medieval Christianity. And he was, he's from the generation, starting 11, 1200s, they are so absolutely confident in the, in the rightness of their position, they want to literally go and convert the world, and he gets people to translate the Quran into Latin, and starts a whole yeshiva, uh, I mean a Catholic yeshiva to study uh, all the Islam, so they can go out there and, and, and convert the uh, Muslims and so forth, he has this in mind, and he finds out from former Jews 
what the Jews are into in this, the Talmud, and he always oh, he thinks it's terribly, there's a whole book, Adversus Judeus, the uh, opponent of the Jews, in which he records some of the crazy stories and terrible things he's heard in the Talmud. But fortunately, he lived in the 1100s, and that's not what most people knew about him, and it didn't get any traction, and at the end of the day, that's all we're concerned about. Right? It's not a class in intellectual history as much as social history. A person can write whatever he wants. If nobody reads it, it doesn't have any, any traction. Agreed? Now, um, however, by the late 1100s and the early 1200s, uh, Christian anger over uh, Jewish economic uppityness and even more verbal uppityness combined with the rise of powerful and zealous Christian rulers, well, it all came together to make a perfect storm for trouble. The two arch figures of this type, late 1100s, early 1200s, is the king of France, Philip Augustus, Philip II, and Pope Innocent III, these two fellows, right, who caused the Jews a lot of trouble. But this guy, uh, where is he? This guy much more. He was a real son of a gun. The king Philip of France. Does it work? I guess not. Uh, from, really, from, he was one of the great French kings. He put together France into a country that it is today. But uh, from almost day one, he super taxed the Jews, drove them out of the country, let them back in, fleeced them once again, let them uh, grow fat with the, with the uh, you know, money lending and took the money away and threw them out again without clothes. I mean, imagine throwing out people in the winter without clothes. I mean, he was a real tyrant. And he hated the Jews, you know, with a loathing. Even today, people are not exactly sure why, because he did it from day one. So all of a sudden, for the first time in France, you get a hostile king. And when you do that, when the government's against you, and you're in real trouble. It's bad enough, like we saw last summer in the Crusades, when the government's on your side, and nevertheless, a mob comes in. But when the government itself is against you, then you're in bad shape. Uh, and the Pope Innocent III is considered the greatest of the medieval popes, certainly the most powerful. He's the one who made the emperors and the kings come and kiss his feet, literally. And figuratively, uh, in all the battles he had with the rulers over who's the boss, he basically he laid down the line where he he said like this. He says, you know, God made me above all of you, and the Pope is not even a human; he's a beyond human, and he made everybody buy into it. Um, he's a hero in the Catholic world, obviously. And I tell you again, the powerful princes in Europe had to come and kiss his feet, and uh, therefore uh, he took this stuff very seriously, and he starts, he starts the process of saying, what's with the Jews anyway? Uh, you know, they're getting very uppity over here. And that's not really a, 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 in the spirit, certainly, of Catholic law. Now, we did promise to preserve their, uh, you know, personal security, and that he doesn't renege on, I'll say that. But, you know, um, I hear, and he's not wrong about this, the Jews are violating the laws by building a shul higher than the local church or they're, they're carrying one in their prayers uh, so loud that everybody else can hear it. Or that they're doing, you know, you, you know the Jews got too cocksure. And what they really should have done was said, listen, you know, things are okay, still I hate. Uh, but we're not like that, are we? You see, this is what I'm trying to say. We're not like that. And so uh, the end of the story is that he convokes the Fourth Lateran Council in 1215. And uh, what can I tell you? He uh, basically is the one who comes out and says that Jews have to wear a yellow star or something along those lines. Um, now, you see, I'm going to tell you something. If the Jews had um, dressed Jewish, I don't say you have to put in a stride like a butter. If the Jews, Jews dressed Jewish, the whole thing wouldn't have happened. You, you, you don't have to be a schlump. But on the other hand, you don't have to you know, go to extremes. 
But in France, Jews didn't wear yarmulkes. In France, um, people went to show without yarmulkes. Um, because of business conditions, you shaved. Uh, how do you know who's who? You might say like this, in modern times, this is what are you telling someone else? We're talking about the Middle Ages over here. It's very offensive to a Christian if I don't know that you was designated as a Jew. Same thing with a Saracen, with a Muslim. You've got to be designated as a Muslim. Uh, today, we all wear, we, me, this, this is the Jewish star. You know what I'm saying? No, so to speak. It's not a Jewish star. It's not a sign of shame. Not, but, okay, so I know who he is. Is it offensive to the Pope that they don't know who he is? And so we'll make it happen. And so the Jews have to be, a, uh, you know, a, 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 a certain badge. If you want to call it a badge of shame, you call it a badge of shame. You can call it something else. Uh, the Jews, in other ways, have to be uh, separated out, legally speaking. It's not good. It means that all of a sudden Big Brother is starting to watch. And you never want that. But nevertheless, it happened. And, uh, you know, all kind of things like that. Um, but even Innocent III, on a few occasions when the Jews were beaten up or killed in some places and they appealed to him, he did write to the kings and say, you know, this is against the rules of the Catholic Church. You're not supposed to use violence against them. Right? Um, I do not approve, he says. And we should definitely stop this business of having uh, Gaisha maids. But even the Pope can't fight that. That's a basic economic reality everywhere. But it's really offensive to Catholic sensibility. He has a famous decree. Uh, things we take for granted, they don't understand. Um, you you want to know what really uh, ticked them off? It's all in, uh, in, in the original documents. Um, he found out that... Um, how should I put this? Pesach time, they have uh, Christian nursemaids. And that means they're nursing the babies for the Jewish mother. Uh, but they need comments. And so the Jews said, oh, this is terrible. Go and uh, get rid of your milk, uh, you know, till after Pesach or something like that. I understand what it means about comments, but go explain that to someone who's not Jewish. It's very racist, very offensive. You see what I'm saying? Things like that. Um, he very offended because what's the history of Shrita? You have an animal and you shaft it. If you want to pay good money, you can trade it. You all know what I'm talking about? Some of you, your parents were butcher business. That's to do the back part of the animal and take out the veins, and that's a T-bone steak and all that. But it's, it's, it's quite a job. What Jews usually did was he said like this. You, you shaft the animal, you uh, butcher it and all that kind of stuff. The Jew take the front part, and the other part you leave for the people who are not Jewish. You, know, you sell it. I understand that as a matter of economics. You understand it as a matter of economics. It's not really a put-down thing on anybody. That's what I say. But this one's like this. Every, the Jews have a habit. Every time they shift the animal, guess which part goes to the Christian? You, you, you know what I'm saying? So you have to see it through the other person's eyes if you want to understand where all this comes from. Things like that, which have been around forever, but they started to be noticed. Well, the real trouble comes a little bit later. as in the 1230s. And when the real trouble hits, it comes, as is so often the case, my friends, from Mishimarim, from, from traitorous Jews. And that's the case today with Israel, whether we want to admit it or not, and that was the case then in other areas as well. It's a, it's, it's a, it's a sad part of, our, of who we are. There have always been Mishimarim. I'm told that's people who convert to another religion, Jews. Uh, but we don't hear too much about them, and they don't seem to have come usually from the learned class of Jews. Um, moreover, usually, it's interesting, people convert for a variety of reasons, 
but they didn't used to be so bad towards their fellow Jews. Um, sometimes the opposite. As a very famous case, as used to be a legendary in Eastern Europe, the guy in the right, oh, you have, you have it backwards, the, the uh, designation, but it does, I guess you could figure that out. Um, <laughs> the, uh, Daniel Klausen was the most famous Meshulman. He was, he was studying to be a rabbi in Russia, in Zorist Russia, that's the one on the right. He says, it's Zorist Russia, and uh, he converted, as very famous, and not only that, he became a big professor in the Russian Orthodox Theological Seminary in St. Petersburg, in like the Harvard of the Russian Orthodox Church. And uh, it's a very famous story in Yiddish. They say, why'd you do that? He says, Besser Tizana, uh, what did I say? Besser Tizana professor in Petersburg via Malamed and Aishishok. You know? And I was like, I get a, I did for careerist purposes. So the Jews all do stay in that. You know, everybody's different, all the rest of it. But here's the point. point is like this. When he was a professor already teaching the other priests, he would tell them like this, it's not true about the blood libel. You understand? It's not true about this, that, and the other. I don't say the Jews are right. Look at me. I actually converted. But just because I did that doesn't mean that I'm going to subscribe to lies about them. And so he was always in correspondence with the most famous rabbi in Russia, the one on the left, Rabbi Zikhan Inspector, and a very famous story in Hebrew, it sounds real good, where Rabbi Zikhan Inspector wrote him a letter once. He said, you have to intervene in this blood libel case to explain to him it's not true because, you know, the fixer and all that. And uh, he says, Leif kilakachno tsarta, right? Which in Hebrew can has a double meaning. And you say, that's a story in the uh, Talmud. It was for this that you were created. That's what Rehuda Nasi said, famously to an animal. But notzarta can also mean for this you became a notary, for this being a Christian. You understand? So he said, Leif kilakachno tsarta. And he wrote him back a very famous line, which he recite in Slichos on Yom Kippur time, which says, Achim she notzarti kilalo notzarti. You understand? Which really means like this. They say, yeah, okay. So the point's like this. Yeah, he was a showman. It's an unfortunate case. He left the Jewish religion and all the rest of it. But at least, you know, he wasn't a, a schmo about it, all the rest of it, right? Because when you get that, then you're in real trouble. And that's what happened in the 1200s, unfortunately, in France. Sometimes you get the opposite, and that's what happened over here. The story begins with the yeshiva bacher in Paris. Believe it or not, in those days, I'm talking about the 1200s, Paris, it's hard to believe, was the main Ashkenazic Mokham Torah. And the main yeshiva, 300 boys. The Marm Rottenberg traveled from deep in Germany to go study in Paris. And uh, boys from all over the Ashkenazic world elsewhere. Uh, we don't usually think of Paris in that uh, regard, but it was in those days. Uh, the famous Rosh Yeshiva at that time, the big rabbi was Rabbi Achiel of Paris. These are people who are, among others, writing the Tosvos. They're big Rishonim, as they call them. Uh, this Bacher, who moved there, uh, came to the conclusion that the Karaites are correct. Uh, Lakewood is not the place to be for that. <laughs> okay? That's what he was in Lakewood, so to speak, at that time, and he came up with a radical uh, conclusions. Uh, the whole Torah Shabbat contained the Talmud's bunch of baloney. He said a bunch of lies. Well, this is kind of more than shocking, as I say before, in Lakewood. And so the Rosh Hashiva had him publicly excommunicated in the year 1225. So it's interesting that he went through a harem uh, ceremony like Spinoza, the whole nine yards. The idea of harem is nobody's going to talk to you, you know, they, they uh, totally excommunicate you. But of course, the main point of the harem is the implication, until you retract, then you can come back. The whole point is not one of punishment per se, but it's one rather as trying to motivate someone to change. That's the theory behind the excommunication. Right? It's a social conformity thing. Now, um, I don't know the personal drama, 
but it must have been attention city in Paris in those days. And this boy, the auction, and he remained a Yid in Cherem, in Paris, uh, for a decade. So I always say, hey, you have to come up with novels. <laughs> we have more than enough material over here. Now these were the very years, 1225 to 1235. These are the very years that the Maimonidean controversies were raging in France and Spain. Uh, Rambam died in 1205, I think, and some of his things were considered controversial. You'll be shocked to hear. And you had the right wing and the left wing, and they went at it with a will for about 100 years. It's most unusual in Jewish history to have big fights over these kind of Ashkabic matters, but we have them today. And uh, the anti-Maimonideans were hot with zeal, and they, at one point, and this can happen when you get machlokas, at one point uh, in France, complained to the Catholic Dominican priests that certain books by Maimonides were Aristotelian. Okay? Now, the Dominicans, that's the Dominican monks, uh, had burned two of Aristotle's books, his physics and metaphysics, in Paris in 1210. So the anti-Maimonideans, who were from rabbis, figured that the Dominicans would do the same to the objectionable Rambam books. You understand? Aristotle's had an interesting reception history in, uh, in the West. Sometimes he's been considered kosher, and sometimes he's considered trade. I'm talking about Christianity now. So in France, at that particular time, uh, before or later in the century before Thomas Aquinas, Aristotle was considered trafe. Therefore, some of his books, not all, but some of his books were burned. And the Rambam is an Aristotelian, so burned his books also. That's what happened. In other words, we Jews started it. Okay? I wish that wasn't the case, but it is. We gave them the idea, and the right wing started, by the way. And uh, as we know, the road to hell is always paved with good intentions. The pro-Maimonideans, and many Jews even who weren't, including a young person in Spain called the Ramban, were shocked and horrified at this incident. I mean, you never had a burning of a swarm. Uh, in fact, it led the Ramban to write his famous epistle, his Igeras, to the French rabbis, where he said, cool it. You know, so this is getting out of hand. And you don't have to agree with everything the Rambam said. He said, I don't. Uh, Ramban is a famous critic of the Rambam. But you have to give him total respect. You have to give him total respect. And um, anyway, uh, this led to bitter feelings of both sides. It led to revenge on the right wing. They arranged that the people who told the monks to burn the books had their tongues cut out. Okay? So I tell you again, you push me, I'll push back, that kind of thing happens. Uh, it was a hot time in the old town. And it cannot fail, have failed, to make an impression, a gruesome impression, upon a young, a young yeshiva bachar in Cherem, in Paris. Clever Christian priests, Dominican, Franciscans, discovered this person, befriended him, and went to work on him, eventually getting him to convert. So here's a person who's been, been uh, living, I mean, it's, it's, I tell you, it's, it's beyond the movie. He's living in the Jewish community in Paris. No one's talking to him for 10 years, and he won't change. What, you know, as Akshonis. Like Alicia Ben Avuya, when he finally did convert, his anger was at the Jewish community had turned white hot, and he encouraged a pogrom by the Christians, which hit France, and led to the death of hundreds and the forced conversion of 3,000 men, women, and children, which is unusual up to that time in European history. Within a year or two, he himself became a Franciscan monk, which, as I say, going mina katsa la katsa, from Lakewood to a monk, you know, and this is beyond Lakewood, this is the Yeshiva of Yechil of Paris, this is the Yeshiva of Tosafis. You can't get from more, one extreme more to the other. Uh, and he called himself Nicholas Donin. Now, full of cold hatred, 
he desires to undo the entire Jewish position in Christendom. It's a, it's a movie. Which is not so easy to do. After all, the Jews are inferior but protected, as I've been trying to say over and over again. The Jews have a legitimate position in the Christian society. They're supposed to be a, as I said before, a downtrodden minority, all that kind of stuff. They're not supposed to hire Christians, and, and but, uh, you're not supposed, but, but they have the right to be there. And uh, by, they have the right to protection of life and limb by the state and by the church. It's a funny position. Usually Christianity, like Judaism, doesn't allow for any deviations. But Judaism was an exception, and they had it. And this guy wants to undo the whole thing. He figures that the way to get to, to, get to the Jews is to expose the contempt that the Jews have for Christianity and for Christians, and specifically to expose the Talmud as being held in higher esteem than the Old Testament, which should be shocking to Christians, and also how obscene and blasphemous the Talmud is. I repeat, how obscene and blasphemous the Talmud is, uh, particularly the extremely negative statements about Jesus and Christianity. As a yeshiva bacher, who is now a monk, he is well aware of how ignorant Christians are about internal Jewish religious culture. And so they have no idea that they have holy books. In fact, as I said before, the supreme canonical books in Judaism which make uh, bad remarks about others. You see, the Old Testament was written long ago, and that's part of the New Testament. And anyway, the Old Testament long predated Christianity. But the Talmud, my friends, did not predate Christianity, did it? The Mishnah and all this is already A.D., <laughs> after the rise of early Christianity. And so they have what to say on the subject, and it's not pretty. And so, uh, who told you to open your mouth? He wants to get him. And so in that year, in 1236, he writes a long letter to the Pope. At that time, we've got Pope Gregory IX. That's the next picture. These are all very famous medieval pontiffs. And basically, he says, wake up and smell the coffee. Allow me to introduce to you the Talmud. And Donin levels 35 charges against the Talmud, um, which he says, you know, as I said before, it's blasphemous, it's obscene, it makes bad statements against Jesus, against Mary, against, uh, you know, the idea of transubstantiation, and so on and so forth across the board. Plus, as I said before, in general, it's just an ugly book. Uh, some of the Agathas are weird if you don't understand them, as I'll explain to you or read to you in a minute, I hope. The Pope and his staff conduct an investigation of the text of the Talmud. How? We don't know exactly. But it takes three years. Meaning, they didn't just fly off the handle or something like this. The Vatican has its pluses and minuses, but it's a bureaucracy. And so they appoint a commission and try to get copies and get people to translate. They talk to other former Jews, things of this nature. It's not uncommon. I'll give you an example. Back, I remember in the early 1200s, when the Holy Roman Emperor, Frederick II, was told about the blood libel, he didn't know if it was true or not true. So he made his business, he appointed a commission, and they assembled together like 100 mission bundles from all over Europe, from Germany and from France, and place they all came to a castle in, uh, I think it was in Italy, and uh, they had a conference, and they said, I guess, so is it true or is it not true? And they said it wasn't true, then they said that it's not true, meaning they didn't just fly off the handle and go off of it, it was a government. It had rules and regulations. Well, the problem is that there's plenty, <laughs> let's put it this way, Nicholas Donut was right, and, uh, and that was the problem. On June the 9th, uh, 1239, the Pope, Pope Gregory, of course, writes to the Archbishops of France a very famous bull entitled Si Verasunt. Si Verasunt, if it's really true. And here's what he says. Uh, Professor Grazel long ago put this all together in a book. Uh, here we are. If what is, this is the Pope writing to the bishops and the prior Dominicans and all that. If what is said about the Jews is true, uh, 
then it's really terrible. And then we're, oh, wait, excuse me, I want to get the earlier page. Here it is. If what is said about the Jews of France and other lands is true, no punishment will be sufficiently great or sufficiently worthy of their crime. For they, so we have heard, are not content with the old law, which God gave to Moses in writing. They even ignore it completely and affirm that God gave another law, which is called Talmud, or teaching, handed down to Moses orally. That's what they affirm. Falsely, they allege that it was implanted within their minds and unwritten, was there preserved until certain men came, whom they call sages and scribes, who, fearing that this law may be lost from the minds of men through forgetfulness, reduced it to writing. And the volume of this far exceeds the text of the Bible. Never heard of this before. In this is contained matter that is so abusive and unspeakable that it arouses shame in those who mention it and horror in those who hear it. It's just beyond the pale. Wherefore, since it is said to be the chief cause that holds the Jews obstinate in their perfidy, I was always wondering why the Jews don't see the light. I was always wondering why didn't they understand the Old Testament the way we do? It never occurred to me they don't pay any attention to the Old Testament. They're all into some book that we never even heard of. Now I get it. We thought that your fraternity, you the monks and, and the churchmen in France, should be warned and urged, and we therefore order you by certain apostolic letters that when the first Saturday of Lent should come, meaning when the Jews are in Shul and Shabbos, in the morning, while they're gathered in their synagogues, you shall, by our order, seize all the books of the Jews that live in your districts and have these books carefully guarded in the possessions of the Dominicans and the Franciscan friars. The Dominicans and the Franciscan friars are the number one enemies of the Jews. Uh, for this purpose, you may invoke the help of the secular state. You may promulgate the sentence of excommunication against all, subject to your, all those subject to your jurisdiction, whether clergy, lady, or otherwise, who refuse to give up the Hebrew books in which they have their possession, despite your warning, giving grant generally in church individually. Which means I know the Jews will have Geisha friends will hide the books for them, therefore you have to threaten them with excommunication uh, so that this plan will work. And that's what they did. Okay? This is written, as I say before, in the middle of June 9th, of 1239, uh, 10 days later, the Pope goes beyond that, because he must have been reading more and more, and he goes on to say, uh, wherefore, since this is said to be the most important reason why the Jews remain obstinate in their perfidy, perfidy uh, we, through our letters, uh, give discretion, order your discretion, to have the Jews who live in your kingdoms, and he says, France, England, Navarre, Castile, Leon, Portugal, Forced by the secular arm to give up their books, those books which you'll find errors, you'll cause to be burned at the stake. By apostolic power to our censure, you'll silence all the opponents. I know there are people who protest against it. You tell them, is it coming from the top, from the Pope? You also report to us faithfully what we've done this matters, and should be able to be present in fulfillment, someone should carry out its execution. So the Pope basically buys the whole story, and he says, if that's what the Talmud is, then the Talmud should be destroyed, because that's not really Judaism. <laughs> Judaism in the Old Testament. This unfortunate matter, uh, I don't know how it got in there, and we're going to get rid of it. Uh, it's got terrible things in there. Um, and so, in mid and late 1239, all the Hebrew books they can get their hands on are seized. But what do you do with them exactly? I mean, do you just go ahead and burn them? I mean, how, how's that work? Uh, they weren't sure. That's a radical new step in the Middle Ages. Never happened before. And so, very interestingly, the French government, anti-Semitic as it was, as it is, uh, hesitates, not sure what to do. And finally, they summon the leading rabbis in France, Rabbi Chiel of Paris. He's summoned with a few other big rabbis, including the Smog. Some people know that Sefer Mitzvah, those were Moshe Kusi, 
who had just returned from a Billy Graham revival campaign in Iberia. He was one of the big French rabbis, and he heard that in Spain, the Jews are becoming more and more lax in their Yiddishkeit. They're getting rid of mezuzahs and tefillin and Nakibi Shabbos, and they're intermarrying and all the rest. And, and he, as I said before, goes down with a revival campaign, uh, which he says worked marvelously. And um, he just came back from that. And now they're all summoned uh, by the king and the queen and the queen mother and the Inquisition to answer charges against the Talmud. Uh, you want to know the anniversary of that? Today. There's a three-day trial, June 25, 26, 27, in the year 1240. <laughs> so here we are in June 26, in the year 2012. Right? Beg pardon? Today. Well, that's the old calendar. You're right about that. <laughs> God help me from the astronomers and the mathematicians. Now, uh, he's right. He's right. Um, anyway, there are, two, there are two accounts of this vikuach. Um, a vikuach means a debate. It's not a debate. It's an interrogation. But it's very famous. It's called a vikuach or a vikil Paris. It's a Hebrew, there's a Hebrew one put out by him, and there's a, a Latin one put out by them. Uh, you'll be shocked to hear that the two accounts are not identical. You'll be shocked to hear that each one says, we won. Okay? It's a spin job, you know. That's always the way it goes. Um, but what's really interesting, and I'll read you a, the piece of the Catholic one in a minute. What's really interesting is, when you read it, the Hebrew account, which is kind of long, uh, it's very fascinating, because a Rechil is treated with a certain courtesy by the queen. Uh, it was Blanche of Castile. I won't say she's the most famous name in the Middle Ages. But she should be. She's one of the most famous. That's her son. Let's get to the name. Is that her? No. There you go. Right. I mean, I know you can tell a lot by that picture, but uh, but uh, are any of you ever heard of Eleanor of Aquitaine? Does that mean anything to you? Yeah. A granddaughter. Yeah. And she's just like her. That's the point. Blanche sounds so bland, doesn't it? Uh, Bianca was her name, but her grandfather was Henry II and 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 and, uh, and uh, Eleanor of Aquitaine, the most famous and controversial queen of the Middle Ages, someone who was a tough individual and brilliant and all this kind of stuff. I mean, what does it take to be a successful woman in the Middle Ages? You tell me. And so um, she is it, very interesting. Uh, she's there at the tribunal, and, uh, you know, the rabbi says like this. They say, swear in. He said, I've never sworn a oath in my life. And they say, the church guy says, I guess, that's because he wants to lie. Make him swear. And the queen says, I guess, let him alone. You know, they, don't, they don't take an oath. There is a thing in Judaism not to take an oath. You know that. Uh, now, maybe he was planning to lie. I don't know. But the fact of the matter is, she, 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 she sides with him in a bunch of things like that. It's actually a very fascinating on the human level. As they say before, she was a tough woman, one of the most famous women in the Middle Ages. Um, a granddaughter, she was a lookalike of the beautiful and brilliant Eleanor of Aquitaine. That's what they all say. And Blanche likes the Jews. That's the funny thing about her. Um, she especially likes Rabbi Yechiel of Paris. Now, go figure that one out. You know, uh, as I said before, here you have a mini-series. Now, her son, well, it's a true story. Her son, if you go back to Louis IX, St. Louis, is uh, the opposite. Uh, he hates the Jews, and we love to massacre them. Uh, St. Louis is famous for making the following observation to Thomas Aquinas. You don't argue with a Jew. Here's what you do. You take a sword, you go like this, you run it through their stomach, and then it's, that's the argument you have with a Jew. You see? So this is how he, that, that, that's how he was. And the mother wasn't like that. And he often deferred uh, to his strong-willed 
and very capable mom to whom he repeatedly owed his life and his throne. Uh, he was, it's, a, it's a story story. He was 14 when his father died. Uh, the barons and the nobles were going to rip him to shreds. He didn't know what to do. And she ran the uh, kingdom for him and played this nobleman off that nobleman, fought a war with this one, and did with this one, and all, you know, in an unbelievable way, like Cardinal Rissiu, for about a dozen, 12, 13, 14 years until he was old enough in his 20s to uh, you know, be recognized by everybody as the king of France. She was a really remarkable type of person. He knew better than to ignore what she says. Of course, um, even, <laughs> even when he became the king of France, let's put it this way, she told him who to marry, and uh, she never let his wife talk to the husband. All the chroniclers say this. He never spoke to his wife, except when they, uh, you know, uh, when they were together conjugally. But uh, the rest of the time, she controlled all access to the queen. I've never heard of a mother-in-law like that, but, you know, in, 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 but she was, she was that. So this is a strong uh, individual, and basically she says to her son, you can say whatever you want. The Jewish physical safety is guaranteed by me, that's actually about moi, and don't you mess with me. And so when they have this interrogation, she's like, I know what you're going to do. You're going to turn into some of the butchery. I was like, I'm going to be there. And so it's very fascinating where if you read the Hebrew account, the churchman said, like, do this, that, and the other. And the queen says, get off his back. Let him say it the way he wants to say it. You understand? And he says, I'm afraid to talk to you. She says, I, I'm giving you the guarantee. You know, nobody's messing with me. And that's what happened. And so, uh, you know, the Jews said, Baruch Hashem. But then, of course, the interrogation proceeds. What's the story with Yeshu HaNotzri? What, who, is, who is the one mentioned in the Talmud? Uh, do they have all kind of bad statements about him? Well, he said, oh, definitely. Uh, Yeshu HaNotzri stood, he's, he's condemned when in death to be in boiling excrement. That's pretty big. And uh, he said this, and uh, he was hanged by the Sanhedrin on Erev Pesach, uh, like, like a common criminal. Uh, and um, he tried to do this, and they stopped him, and all kind of negative things. But it's a different Yeshua on earth. It's not Jesus that you're talking about. They said, what are you talking about? So much belonging. He said, look, uh, the most stories place him, um, what's the right word? Not in the right time. Anachronist, that's something. Place him anachronistically in the Talmud. For example, uh, one of the most famous stories, I'm sure many have heard, is that uh, Yeshua was a student uh, Rabbi Yeshua ben Parachia, and uh, it was a famous person way back when, mentioned in Perkei Elvis in the first chapter, and uh, he had been exiled to Egypt, and on the way back, uh, he accompanied his Rebbe, and uh, he made some lewd remarks about the waitress at the thing, and the Rebbe like, threw him away, and as a result, he got angry and ran off from Judaism, and, you know, we're, stories along those lines. Yeah, what about it? Uh, Yeshua ben Parachia lived 100 B.C., I repeat, 100 B.C., in the time of the Maccabees of Chashmanayim, long before the beginnings of historical Christianity, as you guys say. They say, ah, that's a bunch of baloney, it's the same guy. No, it isn't, you know, back and forth. Now, is it or isn't it? I told you last week, Judaism doesn't have any real position on Christianity. Oh, he has a collection of stories, some which may be legendary and some which may be not. Once you get down to the level of Agatha, as we'll see this week and next week, you know, who knows? I mean, literally. Who knows when these stories are meant to be historical truths or when they're mushals or rhetorical types of things, uh, you know, trying to make a point. The Marala has a whole system how to interpret the Agatha's. The Rambam has a different system how to interpret the Agatha's. Uh, I'm talking about the non-legal parts of the Talmudic literature. 
Anyone today who wishes to can get what they call the Ein Yaakov, which is a collection of all the Agadot that you have in the Talmud, and you read the, the beginning and the first volume, is very famous, and you have the different intros, all of which are in totally different lines. You can read the intro by Rabbi Avram ben Arambam, who you'll be shocked to hear is my Maradian, is the Rambam's son, and give you a whole very rationalistic kind of interpretation of all the Agados. You, then you next to it comes that from Ramchal, or Moshe Chaim Lusato, who's a big mystic, and he gives a very mystical interpretation of the Agados. And then you have another one, uh, the Maritz Chayas, who gives a historical interpretation of Maritz, and then you have the Maral, and you have the others. The Jews have never bothered to get some kind of common... Uh, definitions on the Agadahs, so who knows what the Yeshua did, that and the other, he can't explain that to them. If it's a sacred book, then you have to take it literally, and you know, therefore he has to wiggle that way. Um, I remember one of the churchmen say, don't tell me this other people named Yeshua, that's such a, that's only one person like that. He says, am I not looking at King Louis the Ninth? There are nine Louis of the King of England, why say it's the same name? They can't be the same person, right? Yeah, you get into that kind of business. Um, what about all the statements of the Talmud about Goyim, a God? Oh, that's, that's a pagan. In the old times when it was idol worship, it doesn't refer to the Christians. But they're not idol worshippers. Um, they don't believe a word of this. Uh, he warns them. You cannot dis- even if you burn the Talmud, you cannot destroy the Talmud. It's all over the world. It's in the Arab countries and elsewhere. You can't get them all. It's like somebody would say to Hitler, you can't, you're not going to succeed if you get all the Jews in the world. And uh, that's the way it goes. Well, don't be surprised if um, the rabbis are not able to persuade the churchmen that you know, there's nothing anti-Christian or things of this nature in the Talmud. It's quite the opposite. Let me read you very briefly, the, uh, 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 like I said before, it won't take long, the uh, account that you have in the Latin protocol that the church keeps of this trial. And it's not the whole business, it's just very brief. And they nailed down the parts that they consider to be shocking or offensive in the Jewish tradition, and it's entitled over here, The Confessions of Master Vivo. Master is Magister, it's a rabbi. And Vivo is Chaim or Yechiel. Right? Yechiel, you know, life. And he says, number one, the said Master Vivo, this is all it says. He refused to, entirely to swear an oath. He said that the Talmud never lied. He says that Jesus knows he was Jesus the Nazarene, son of Miriam. He was hanged on Eve of Passover. He admitted he was born of adultery. He's punished in hell and boiling excrement. He lives in the time of Titus. He said he was a different man from our Jesus, but he couldn't say who it was, whence it's sufficiently clear that he's lying. He said further that in the schools, meaning the yeshivas, they study the Talmud more earnestly in the Bible, and no one would be called a rabbi unless he knows the Talmud, even if he knows the Bible by heart. He said furtherly, the rabbis had the authority to revoke the command of God about blowing the horn on the first day of seventh month, carrying the palms on the fifteenth day, and they may revoke this happen to a Sabbath, lest the horn should be carried through the streets. Because he told them something that we're familiar with, because we're born in this culture, we grow with it. Why don't you blow the shofar on Shabbos? It's Xerah, Shemayyamriyana Dalam Bishusarabim. Now, it says in the Talmud that the rabbi said, don't do it because they're afraid of carrying. But it says in the Bible to do it. You can't tell a Christian coming out of a different culture, oh, they have the right to do that. If God says to do it on the Rosh Hashanah, blood of the chauffeur, who gives you the right to change the rules? And he's not used to that. I understand where they're coming from, so do you. Um, he said, further, it's written in the Talmud that Gentiles who didn't stand on Mount Sinai, didn't receive the Torah, are polluted by the impurity which the, Eve injected, which the serpent injected into Eve, and other things like that. He admitted that Adam had relations with animals in paradise, too. These are different midrash, you know, with the, which Lilith and all that. 
uh, that he, he uh, what do you call it, begat demons. And uh, he said, further, the whole Talmud is coming, was given to Moses on Mount Sinai, not only in writing, but orally by heart. He said in the Talmud, it says, Woe to me that I have sworn, now that I have sworn, God says, who will absolve me. And Rava was a fool because he didn't say, Mutterlach, Mutterlach. Meaning, there are many agadites which are anthropomorphic. And to a person who's not Jewish, they're grossly anthropomorphic. I can tell you the Muslim websites, as we speak today, are full of these things. Um, and when it says, for example, that God says when someone dies, calmly Mirosha, my arm hurts, my fingers, this is extremely offensive to a person who's not growing out of this culture. You think that the Jews are a bunch of morons, and beyond that, they have a very physical description and understanding of God. It says every night God curses himself three times every night because he allowed the temple to be destroyed and the Jews given up to servitude. servitude. It does say that in the Umar Brothers. These things are not literal. They're rhetorical. They're figurative. But you can't explain it. But, you know, they can't understand that. He said further that it says Elijah the prophet frequented the schools of the rabbis because there are many stories in the Gemara where they're talking over here and Elian Nobi walks in. <laughs> like, what is that? Uh, he said no, no Jew would feel the pain of fire of hell and none of it would be punished in, in more than 12 months. He said in the Talmud says both the bodies and the souls are reduced to dust and have no punishment except this. Uh, and that apparently bothered him. And, you know, on and on and on. Um, he said uh, that God... In the Talmud, it says that God exerts himself to teach children every day, and he sits and plays with the Liviasa, with the big fish. He said that God asked, him, asked himself, may it be my will that my mercy overcome my wrath. They can't get it. There's also the confession, as he said, of our master Judas, because one of the other rabbis were Yehuda Milon. And I won't read it to you. I'm trying to show you that what we really have over here is not a dialogue, but two things passing each other, because the Jews are coming from an entirely self um, created cultural milieu. It's enti- I, I speak often here about cultural insularity, and that's what you mean. The Jews understand it, and they don't understand it the way they do, and now you have what you call the outsider looking in, and how does it look to them? And I understand what's going on over here. So the point is, it wasn't going in a good direction. What can I tell you? Uh, the Catholic legal system grinds on. From medieval French Christian sources, it seems that the rabbis and the rich Jews get to the main archbishop, uh, and they have the whole thing called off, and the book's restored. But then the archbishop mysteriously, quote-unquote, gets sick and dies, and the books are seized again. Okay? Finally, in the summer of 1241, it's all kind of debates among the historians, not that you need to know all this, but right now it's going on the last four or five years, all kind of arcane articles written by some very distinguished students. What year was it exactly that the burning took place because the Catholic documents kind of contradict each other? Professor Paul Lawrence Rose, I think from Princeton, just wrote a very famous article about this. Uh, but the bottom line is, somewhere it seems in the, in the year 1241, not the way they say it in the books, the books, 30 wagon loads and all, according to tradition, were burned in public in Paris. Now, I want you to understand, we're talking about before the printing press, 30 loads, is, think, just think about it. It says it was 24 and then another 6 and all. So think about what that means. Uh, think about what Jewish society was in, in those days, as it is today. Uh, our Achilles heel is our dependence upon texts. Um, if someone wants to be really sneaky and uh, terrible, well, they don't have to hurt anybody. They just have to go and confiscate all the Jewish books. Uh, what's the whole name of Israel going to do if they take away all the books? That's ingenious. That's why it's fiendish. And that's what they do. And so uh, the Jews, of course, naturally freak out. And they, they, they Mayor Rottenberg, uh, who later on becomes a very famous rabbi in his own rights, writes that famous poem that they recite in the Kinos, Shali's Roof of Aish. Do you not ask? Uh, you who are burned in fire, 
why God gave you a fire was it that you should be burned again in infamy people don't understand usually they're thinking about the burning of a Sefer Torah the Catholics don't burn Sefer Torahs the church is not out to get a Sefer Torah a Sefer Torah is the Old Testament that's not a problem it's the Talmud that they're after the Torah Shabbat Pet. you understand and so when he's talking about the Torah he's talking about he, in that poem he's conflating the Talmud with the Sefer Torah which is what a from Jew does because they're not two separate traditions, but they're all joined together, the Torah Shabbat being the authoritative exposition of the Torah Shabbat And so here you have a very, the most famous of the German rabbis writing about an incident that he witnesses as the yeshiva bachar in the yeshiva in Paris. Okay? It's very famous. Soon will be Tisha B'av, and maybe you'll, now that I told you about this, you'll pay particular attention then when we come across it. Note well that no physical violence is offered to Jews. It's that weird Catholic culture. The Pope said you can burn the books. And in his mind, listen closely to what I'm saying, in his mind, he's actually doing the Jews a favor. You understand? He's getting rid of their obscenities and errors that somehow or other crept into there, and hopefully we're throwing them back to the good old Old Testament, which now, if they see it without the intervening uh, influence of the Talmud, will lead them back to the proper religion of Christianity. Well, um... A very famous legend arises, at least it seems to be a legend, I wasn't there, but I mentioned it particularly this week, it's very famous, and that is, no, this enters Jewish culture, and Jewish um, tradition, you might say, Mesorah, and uh, it's Parshish Chukak, it's this week, and not only when the week, not only is today the anniversary of the interrogation of Michiel Paris, but this week, Parshish Chukas is supposed to be, according to the Jewish sources, which is one, or maybe two, when they burned this stuff in Paris. So it's not really accurate. But the way it goes is, it says that they, here's how the story goes. That uh, originally they took the books of the Rambam and uh, they told the Christians to burn it and they burned it. And then sometime later, not long after that, um, they took the books of all the Gemaras and they burned them in the same place that the Rambam did, was burned, the books of the Rambam, in front of the Louvre or something like that in Paris. And that showed people that what the Rambam said Moshe Mitzvah was really identical with what the Talmud said. Notice he wasn't off-wall, he wasn't heretical or anything like that, but he was an integral part of Judaism. And uh, this happened in Parshish Chukas because in Parshish Chukas, those who read the Targum Onkelos, well, it says, Zos Chukas Torah can be read, Da Gezerah Deraisa. Now, Gezerah Deraisa, you can translate like this. This is the law of the Torah. I understand that. Alternatively, you can read like this. This is the Gezerah that was imposed on the Arise on the Torah. This was the decree of persecution. So it comes in very, blends in very well. And the story goes on to say that the leader of those who got the books burned, or one of the leaders, was Rebbeinu Yonah, right, of Gerona, and a very famous Spanish uh, Jew, an uncle of the Ramban. And he had been the leader of the charge against the Maimonideans, and now he saw the burning of the Talmud books in the same place where Ramos books were and he saw the error of his ways and he had total remorse and he dedicated the rest of his life to going around publicly in one community in Spain after another and saying, I was wrong, I'm the person who says about the Ramam and I'm publicly asking Mechila and all the rest. And, and, and moved by the spirit of repentance he wrote the famous book called Shari Teshuva, which is today one of the classic books on the subject of repentance and all that kind of stuff. It's a great story it's just I don't think it happened. The point is <laughs> But it doesn't matter, I mean, you know, in other words, the story itself, what I mean, in other words, the real story is gripping, and that is, the Jews got hit with raids on their houses, 
And it's like Fahrenheit 451. You're not allowed to have a book. If you get a book, you can get in big trouble. And they take it away. And they but they didn't harm the people who had the books. That's the funny part. That's that weird Catholic attitude. Um, within a short while, there was a new pope. Gregory was gone, and you got the Innocent IV. So he's a very interesting guy in many respects. It seems from some of the sources that he has a, a, a second burning. Um, that's a problem. I won't uh, read into it, but he seems to, in one of his uh, uh, episodes, that he writes about that. And very likely that kind of thing happened, because I'm sure they didn't get every book the first time. It happened several times, I repeat, several times in the 1240s. Uh, so that's the problem. The Jews really lose all the books, even the ones you hide. The Jews lobby and bribe like crazy. What else can you do? All those lost manuscripts, I mean, think about it. Did you ever ask yourselves, why do we not have anything original from Rashi or people like that? Uh, no wonder there's such a dearth of original material. St. Louis gets older. The queen gets really old. Uh, it's not good. If Louis is going to be king of France, he's the guy who wants to shove the knife through the Jews. And, you know, uh, I mean, he was a real piece of work. When he launches the crusade, he says, all those who owed money to the Jews are free. They don't have to pay the Jews. They pay me. <laughs> the money good for the crusade. That's who you're dealing with. Fascinatingly, the Jews somehow get to Pope Innocent IV. They explain to him, now I wasn't there, I was in the Vatican not long ago, but it has a lot of secrets in that building. One of them is, back in the 1240s, some delegation of Jews from France or Italy elsewhere got to the Pope behind closed doors, and they said, say, look, here's the bottom line. They explained to him that they are allowed to practice Judaism by long-standing tradition acknowledged by the Church. Well, they're now telling him, you're operating on the wrong premise. Their Mesorah is that the Talmud contains the Torah Shabbat at least in Salachic parts, the Agada does another matter, and they cannot administer the Old Testament without the exposition of the Talmud. If you Jews have permitted us to do this, I mean, if you Christians have permitted us to, to practice our religion, it's the Talmud, baby, get used to it. And so, could they please, please pretty please, keep the Gemaras? They'll get rid of all the, in, the offensive Agadatas. And he says yes, the Pope agrees. The Jews further ask for the Pope's help with St. Louis, with the King of France and the viciously anti-Semitic French people who are using physical violence. And again, the Pope agrees. It's like, so I won't read it to you, but the Pope tells him, is he keep your hands off of that. Uh, the French, who are on a roll, don't want to listen to the Pope. And a third burning takes place in Paris in 1248. It gets really bad in France. How many purges can they take? You understand? Fortunately, in 1249, Louis IX goes off on a crusade in Egypt. He's defeated. He's imprisoned. He's ransomed. He's released. He hangs around Palestine. And the general is away, is away from home. When the king is away from home, who is the regent? It's not his wife, but it's his mother. Right? And once, the, once Blanche takes over, the pogroms stop. You understand? Eventually, Louis returns. His mother dies. Yiddish guy begins to close down. In 1259, a large group of rabbis makes Aliyah, they move to Israel, to Akko, because it's, it's all over in France. The age of French Judaism's brilliant role in art history, and for the 10 and 1100s, 9 to 1100s, I would say France was possibly the number one center of Yiddishkeit in the world, if you're talking about people like Rashi and Tosas and the Rebbeinu Gershon, the people who come out of there. Now it comes to an end and never recovers. There are a lot of Jews in France today, but it's not a big center of Judaism, as you know. Jewish books in the age before the printing press had been rather rare, naturally. Repeated confiscations wrecked the fragile physical and material nature of Jewish culture. As I said before, our Achilles heel is our dependence on text. That's before the internet, obviously, and things like that. And therefore, if there ain't no books, it's all, it's all over. You understand? I remember when I went to Russia a long time ago, 
we got married again for, for a certain mission, they saw like this. The most important book, bring a sitter. Why bring a sitter? The guy's got a sitter, can do something. They don't have a sitter, we, we, <laughs> can't, can't, you can't operate. Don't bring any high fancy books. With the Soviet Jews near death, I just want a sitter. On the other hand, the burn the Talmud craze did not spread to the other countries. Didn't hit England, didn't hit Germany, didn't hit Spain. It's very interesting in that regard. The conditions, you know, the anti-Semitic conditions that were in France did not necessarily spread to the other countries in the same way that they did in, uh, in, 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 out of France, which is the case in Europe as we speak today in the year 2012. Isn't that right? There's tremendous anti-Semitism in France. Thank God it hasn't hit the same way in places like Italy where we're, or even Spain, for crying out loud. But there would be a serious attempt to uh, extend the craze to neighboring Spain, although the king of uh, Aragon, the king of, Spain, uh, of Western Spain, uh, Eastern Spain, would proudly assure the Jews, he told Ramban, don't worry, we are not the barbarous French. Okay? Uh, would they succeed in snuffing out medieval Spanish Judaism as they succeeded in snuffing out medieval French Judaism by giving all their books? That's the plan, and that's what we'll talk about next week. Good night. For sponsorship opportunities or to support this podcast, please visit our donate page at www.support.rabbidovidkatz.com.